Hi, this is Veronica Jaguer, and you're listening to The Melting Podcast. You're listening to The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. Lexicon of Sewers and Word Chefs, welcome to episode 19 of the Melting Podcast. I'm AF. And I'm Aaron. And we have some special treats for you this month, folks. Treats? Oh, yeah. Could it be because yesterday was Halloween? That could be part of it. Oh! I wasn't a werewolf this year. Why am I doing that? I don't know. Maybe you're getting too old for it because, you know, it was your birthday. Yes, it was, but I'm still not 30 like you. We're going to start with a trio of Stoke the Fire stories, but we're doing these a little differently. Normally, Stoke the Fires are stories done by different authors based on the same prompt. What do we have this time, Erin? This time, we have three Stoke the Fire stories for you. They are all written by the same author, but based on three different prompts. Yeah. So the thing is, though, that these stories are all in a series. We have stories for prompt number four which was a company has received an order of fledges. They did not order these. Prompt number six, why is everyone afraid of the mailman? In prompt number seven, write a story featuring a member of the podcast crew as a main character. So why don't we just get going with these, Aaron? All right. Bon appetit. Pledge Drive, The Office of Unusual Delivery Services, Part 1, by David Doc Blue Went. Great job, everyone. Another 11 hours like that, and this pledge drive will be history. Veronica crossed the control room and flopped down in the chair behind her desk. One of the perks of being a public television station manager is that she got a full-sized desk all to herself. Scratch that, the only perk of being a station manager is that she got the desk. Closing her eyes and stretching, she pondered the wisdom of yet another cup of coffee. Veronica's eyes snapped open. Did she hear something, or was her sleep-deprived mind playing tricks on her? It was too early in the pledge drive for her to be hearing things. <coughs> the brunette peered at her desk. Or more specifically, at the large cardboard box in the middle of her desk. The large box that seemed to be speaking to her. Holly, what's this? The bespectacled intern didn't look up from his clipboard. What's what? This. What's this box? Veronica stood and pointed at the large box on her desk for emphasis. He peered. Oh, that. Delivery guy dropped it off. Said it was full of pledges and wanted to know where to put it. So you had him put it on my desk? You are in charge of the pledge drive, aren't you? The station manager sighed. Polly had a point. The box aren't again. Since when did pledges arc? Veronica reached for her letter opener and looked at the cardboard container for a long time, considering her options. Reluctantly, she drew the edge of the tool across the packing tape. Before she reached the opposite edge, the box tipped over and popped open, depositing eight clumsy-looking birds on her desk. They arc in unison at her. Instinctively, Veronica jumped back. Without taking her eyes away from the large-billed birds, she called to Polly again. Is that bird scientist still in the green room? 
Yeah, why? The brunette gestured in frustration at her desk. Just get him! Okay. The intern scurried off down the hall. Meanwhile, the birds began to explore the room. Veronica considered trying to corral them somehow and quickly decided that was a job better suited to interns. Instead, she crept closer to the box, trying to figure out where it came from. Fledges? She blinked, making certain her eyes weren't bleary from lack of sleep. That says fledges, not pledges. Well, that certainly makes sense. A new voice entered the room. Veronica turned to see the ornithologist, Dr. Miller, enter the room. It does? Well, yes, as those are clearly immature birds. The description for them would be... Fledges. The birds awked, as if in agreement. The station manager rubbed the bridge of her nose and sighed. Well, that's solved. But why are they... Or why were they in a box on my desk? That is an interesting question. The scientist prodded at a particularly curious bird with a pen. The bird snapped at it and pulled the writing instrument out of his hand. He stood up quickly, eyes gleaming. This is quite unusual, quite unusual indeed. Veronica half expected him to start clapping like an excited child. Dodos were never found this far north. Polly re-entered the room without looking up from his clipboard. Aren't dodos extinct? Exasperated, Veronica snatched away the clipboard and gestured at the room. Do they look extinct? Polly crouched and looked at one of the fuzzy dodos directly in the eyes. What did dodos eat? Dr. Miller cleared his throat. Well, as you noted, dodos are believed to be extinct, so we are liverwurst, apparently. The brunette pointed at one bird, who had extracted a sandwich from a paper bag. A second dodo approached the first, and much awking ensued as they argued over the soft German sausage. Hey, that's my lunch! The intern rushed across the room and joined the lunch meat debate. The flurry of motion attracted the other birds, and soon all eight dodos were competing for the food. The brunette pulled the ornithologist out of immediate earshot of the avian debate. Dodos, eh? So what do we do with them? Well, living specimens might be considered quite valuable to zoos or other research. Valuable? She clicked on her headset. Jake, do we still have that extinction documentary? Yeah? Good. Cue it up for the... She paused, thinking. For the 11 o'clock time slot. Why? We have a brand new premium item for top contributors. Crossroads, The Office of Unusual Delivery Services, Part 2, by David Doc Blue Wendt. For every public transportation station saved by a delivery of rare birds, and every fosterage transformed by the arrival of a limitless golden cornucopia debit card, there was a delivery of a violent duct-tape golem to a waterfowl sport hunter, or bundles of straw, sticks, and bricks delivered to a butcher shop. It was getting to where folks were afraid to answer their doorbell for fear of what might be delivered. That's where I come in. I work for the Office of Unusual Delivery Services. We're a branch of the National Supernatural Crime Police, 
which in turn is a division of the enforcement arm of the Office of the Surgeon General. Don't ask, it's a budgeting thing. My name? Bradford Steele. Lieutenant Bradford Steele. Please stop giggling. It's my job to investigate packages of unknown origin, and when necessary, bring the perpetrators in for prosecution. This is one of those stories. I was just wrapping up the aforementioned butcher shop case, the delivery of straw, sticks, and bricks to Wolf's Fine Meats, and was looking forward to a few days off when the chief called me into her office. I hate to do this, Steele, but you need to cancel your vacation. I frowned at her. This is the third time this year. I know, I know. But this is one only you can handle. I didn't like the sound of that. The UDS office had only been open 13 months, and already I had earned a reputation for the hard cases. Fine, what is it? Someone's been sending street signs to seemingly random people. Stealing street signs is a federal crime, but it's not really our thing, even if they are being shipped through the mail. The signs, as far as anyone can tell, haven't been stolen. Okay, then what's the catch? They've been sent to individuals who have died in auto accidents at the locations described by the street signs. She paused for effect. The car accidents are happening up to 30 days after the signs are received. Real dead ends, huh? I reviewed the files. All of the signposts had been delivered by the Postal Service, but as they did not appear to be stolen, there was nothing illegal about the shipments. There was also no return address. I was disappointed, but I also knew that if it were that easy, they wouldn't have needed me. Next, I checked the locations. No pattern that I could see. Most of the accidents happened in remote areas, but by no means all. But many also took place within 25 miles of the driver's homes. So in other words, they took place where accidents normally take place. I was puzzled. Were the roadside's warnings or threats? Was the shipper predicting the accidents or causing them? It made a real difference. The former wasn't a crime. Might even be considered a public service. The latter? That was murder. And every day that passed, there was a chance another victim would lose their life. I needed a lead. And soon. While I considered my next step, I got a phone call from the morgue regarding the most recent victim. I knew I had to review the other files myself, but since Mr. Clint Cohen was still being processed, I asked them for a courtesy call. Officer Steele? This is the Pear City Morgue. I could hear the amusement in the mortician's voice, but I suppressed my irritation. This is Steele. Did you find anything? Well, nothing unusual. Wounds are consistent with the nature of his car accident. A small amount of alcohol in Mr. Cohen's system, but nowhere near the legal limit. Reasonably healthy for a man his age and weight. Looks like he smoked once, but nothing recent. I thanked her and hung up. That sure sounded like evidence of a precog rather than a serial killer, but something stuck in my head. Calling up the morgue reports for the other three known victims, I scanned their alcohol levels. Two of the three also had alcohol in their blood. Again, not enough to impair their driving, but it was something. On a whim, I did a search of the driving records. That was it. All four identified victims had citations for driving while intoxicated and none of them had actually been punished. Their fines were reduced to zero, the tickets overturned, and or the points were never applied to their driving records. 
This was something I could work with. My potential precog had been transformed into a vengeance killer. Now, all I had to do was find them. There were only several thousand people who both had potential motive and access to the driving records that I had reviewed to make this connection. I needed something more before I could start thinning down my suspect list. Spreading the pictures of the special delivery street signs across my desk, I leaned back in my chair and peered at them. The clue was there somewhere, but where? The signs that had been delivered to the victims were perfect replicas. If you put them next to the real thing, I would have had a hard time telling the difference. Perfect replicas. Too perfect. I sat up with a start and pulled out the pictures of the crime scenes. The fake signs were identical to the real signs, right down to chipped paint and stray spray paint. I would have to examine them in person, but I suspected that the replicas were more worn than the real thing. It only took three hours to fill out the paperwork necessary for the travel requisitions and to make the proper arrangements to visit the locations of, what I was now considering, the murders. By dinner time, I was on my first flight. I decided to work backwards through the crime scenes. At the first, all seemed to be in order. Nothing more or less than the original police report had described. I unwrapped the copy of the street sign that had been set to the victim and compared it to the original which was still in place. Virtually identical, but the replica's colors were ever so slightly faded, as if the maker had overestimated how much sun damage the sign would take. A quick red-eye flight, and I was at the second most recent death before breakfast. All indications of the crime were gone, washed away by daily traffic and natural weather effects. I didn't need to pull out the copy to compare it to the real street marker. Someone had added a gang tag since the crime scene photos had been taken, the same paint that I had identified as a difference back in the lab. Taking out my own spray can and a plastic stencil, I moved around to the back of the road sign. I scanned the environment for watchful eyes while I shook the can and then, holding the stencil against the back of the sign, let loose a blast of paint. The coating was invisible to the naked eye, but it would serve my purposes nicely. I grabbed a quick breakfast at the airport and grabbed my third flight in less than 24 hours. A fast food drive through provided a lunch that I devoured while visiting the third most recent crime scene. The street sign here was gone, or rather it had been replaced. The marker at this intersection was new, or new-ish. The colors were different from the pictures taken by the local police, but they matched those of the surrounding neighborhoods. I was starting to form a working theory, but still had two more stops to make. The earliest sights confirmed my suspicions. The street signs that were in place at the time of the accidents were gone. They had either been replaced or were just missing. I was back in the office less than 36 hours after starting the paperwork. A few more hours and the expense reports would be complete. The difference was that I now had a solid clue to work on. Or thought I did. I pulled out the replica street sign associated with the second stop of my whirlwind tour. Examining it under blacklight, I found what I was looking for. The glowing icon of the UDS. The same symbol I had painted on the sign 24 hours before. I sent the street sign to the lab for a rush job. Through their techniques, they could tell me how old that paint was. Then it would be simple math to determine when it would be stolen from the crime scene. Only this time, I would be there to catch a thief and presumed murderer. My guess turned out to be correct. I was dealing with a chronomancer. One who had lost her husband in a drunk driving accident shortly after the murders began. She had used a combination of sympathetic magic and temporal manipulation 
to punish drunk drivers who had gone unpunished. Once I had observed her removing the sign, it was easy enough to link her to the driver's licensing database. She worked in one of her state's licensing bureau storefronts. After she mailed the sign in question, I had local officers move in. Any sooner, and I risked temporal paradox. Again. She served consecutive life terms for abuse of magic, causing the intentional loss of life, and her mystical library was confiscated by the UDS. And me? I never did get that vacation. But that's another story. Recursion, The Office of Unusual Delivery Services, Part 3, by David Doc Blue Went. AF Grappen's email program announced the arrival of the latest entry in the Office of Unusual Delivery Services series. Setting aside their own writing project, AF opened the document and started reading. An interesting premise, murmured the podcaster. The nearby smartphone started to buzz. Glancing at the display, Grappen answered. Hello, Aaron. You will never believe what arrived in the mail today. A box of fledges. I was going to say baby dodos, but yes. How did you guess? The bespectacled author hit print, sending the manuscript to their printer. You wouldn't believe me if I told you, but I have something to show you. I'll be over in a few minutes. When AF arrived at the Kazmark home, a distinctive chorus of awks and the laughter of children emanated from the residence. Erin let her longtime friend in. The girls are keeping the dodos entertained. Or maybe it's the other way around. She looked over her shoulder toward the gated-off playroom. Where's Theo? He should see this, too. Buying food for the fledges. Food? What do you know about feeding dodos? AF paused as Aaron cocked her head patiently. Grappen peered at his podcasting partner. Oh, right. Liverwurst. They both laughed, and <laughs> AF crossed the room to the sofa. Pulling out the ODS manuscript, Grappen handed it to Aaron. She began skimming the pages, and then looked at the author quizzically. Keep reading. The attractive brunette did as her friend, stopping midway through the story. But how? Unusual, isn't it? Aaron looked thoughtful. The dodos are from the first story. The second story was... Alarm crossed her face. Theo! I thought of that. Has your husband received any packages today? No. Well then, my best guess is that if he hasn't gotten a street sign, he's safe. At least from the second story. The voice actress let out a sigh <sighs> of relief. A short time later... Theo returned home carrying a cloth grocery bag and a brown paper-wrapped box. Erin crossed the room to greet her partner. What's in the box? She asked cautiously. Hold that question for a moment. Theo, you might want to set that bag down and step back. The man did as requested. A whirlwind of ox and feathers emerged from the game room and descended on the deli meat. The couple looked at AF. How? I've read more of the story than you did. What story? Aaron and AF proceeded to explain their unusual morning. The trio of podcasters sat around the kitchen table, peering at the package Theo had found on their doorstep. Should we open it? Asked Aaron. Did we open it? Asked her husband. Both looked at AF, who shrugged. I didn't read that far. A firm knock on the front door disrupted their revelry, and Aaron crossed the residence to the entry. 
Opening it carefully, she found a man on the other side, holding out a badge. Aaron Kazmark, she nodded. I am Lieutenant Bradford Steele of the Office of Unusual Delivery Services. He watched her face carefully. I'm a government agent. May I come in? The young mother looked over her shoulder at her companions. They shrugged. Big help, she mouthed. Turning back to the officer, she opened the door all the way. Please come in, Lieutenant. How can we help you? The agent was tall, with close-cropped black hair and a graying Van Dyke. He swapped his dark sunglasses for a nearly identical pair with transparent lenses. Please call me Brad. He smiled. And actually, I'm hoping that I can help you. He scanned the room with his steel-blue eyes. Have you received any unusual deliveries today? Again, the trio exchanged knowing glances. Actually, yes. AF stepped forward. A box of dodos and, well, whatever that is. Theo helpfully held out the still-unopened brown paper package. Steele looked at the pair. You must be A.F. Grappin, and you are Theo Kazmark. And yes, Dodos would qualify, and if that box is what I think it is, perhaps it's best if I confiscate that as well. Wait a second. Confiscate? Theo stepped closer. What if we don't want you to take these, um, things? That is, of course, your right. I could go get a warrant, but given the nature of the cases I investigate, it might be best if we wrap this up more quickly than that would take. After the fledges have been gathered, and the mysterious unopened box had been secured in Bradford's vehicle, the agent was completing some paperwork at the Kazmark dining table. Were there any additional deliveries? Tell him about the manuscript, hissed Aaron into AF's left ear. The author tried to wave it off, but Steele asked, Manuscript? Reluctantly, the bespectacled podcaster slid a handful of pages across the table to the agent. I received this earlier today. The officer scanned the top sheet. Yes, this definitely qualifies. Any other copies? No, sir. Excellent. Making a few more notes, the tall man got up to leave. Pausing at the door, he turned back and winked at Aaron. I love your podcast. Later that night, AF opened the email that had started their little adventure. Maybe a full cast narration. Full cast narration, huh? Yeah. Meta. Yeah, we kind of went all out on that last one, but we had to. I mean, come on. We couldn't not. I mean, seriously, you write about us. You have stoked our egos as well as stoked the fire. Uh... See what I did there? <laughs> so come on, we we had to give it. We had to give it our all. But you know. I love when people go outside the box like this. Outside the box of fledges? She does this all the time, people. (laughs) All the time. And I just have to live with it. So there was our slightly out of the norm Stoke the Fire segment. We're going to move on now to Food Critic. Food Critic! Da-da-da-da-da-da! Which apparently has its own theme music now. (laughs) Today. If you caught our episode yesterday, where I interviewed Ed Greenwood about his newly released book, Hell Ma, Your World is Doomed, well, then you've already at least somewhat heard of the book we're going to be reviewing, because we're reviewing Hell Ma, Your World is Doomed. (gasps) Shocking! By Ed Greenwood. That's even more shocking. So what was it like talking to Mr. Ed Greenwood? Freaky. Very, very freaky. I really wish you could have been there. That's all right. Stuff comes up. But we'll be having more interviews in the future for stuff with 
the Ed Greenwood group. So yeah. Look forward to that. We'll have Aaron for that. But anyway, I digress. Hellmaw, Your World is Doomed is the first book released by the Ed Greenwood group. It is the first book of the Hellmaw uh, setting. And I almost don't even know where to start with this book. I'll give you just a basic rundown for those of you who didn't catch the Ed Greenwood interview. Um, it's in iTunes, so just go back an episode and find it. But demons have basically been exiled to Earth. They want to get home. But while they're here, you know, humans are food to them. We are cattle. Moo. So we are kind of caught in the middle of this demon war. But a bunch of these exiled demons have decided to take humans and make them into tools to help them get back to their other dimension. So we not only follow three humans, Shanklin, Shannon, and uh, Nast, but we also see what happens with a lot of these demons who are just completely otherworldly creatures. They have different kinds of abilities. They have very strange fetishes. This book is not for children at all. <laughs> you blush when you talk about it. I've read the book. <laughs> I've been scarred by it. Well, that's probably because you got a paper cut. It was an ebook. You're talented. Thank you. Not a compliment. So it's not for children. So obviously mm -hmm. adult themes then? The word fetish came up? Fetish did come up. Um, some of these demons have a serious drive to do the nasty in walk-in freezers and fireplaces with raging fires. With humans? With humans. Were there any survivors? Yeah. Not as many as you'd think. <laughs> Impressive. So how did you feel um, the plot flowed? I mean, was the story told well in just the movement of the story? Did it move along? It did. Just the thing with this book, I didn't know what side to root for. It was kind of fluid on good guys and bad guys in that no one was either. Everybody was getting in each other's way. Nobody was a clear protagonist or antagonist. Yeah. You were kind of on both sides. Yeah, I, I almost couldn't even cheer for the humans sometimes because I wanted some of the demons to win the day and... Because there's two sides of demons fighting against each other, then there's the humans, and it's just one big mess. It's not one against the other. It's no. just everybody. Yeah, and I honestly didn't even realize that until I was about two-thirds of the way through the book that I wasn't really cheering for anyone. But I wasn't cheering against anyone either. And that's something I've never experienced with a book before. So just that, wanting to see how it ends instead of hoping that someone wins. Yeah. Which, this is the first of, I believe, eight books in this particular series in Hellmaw. So it's going to be a while before we get to the end, but I'm going to go pick up the, the next one, even though this isn't really the kind of book I would have picked up off the shelf if I had just been browsing. This was outside of my own, I don't want to say comfort zone, and I don't Pref want to say interests. Preferred zone. Yeah, but it's good to read widely, and I actually do feel very glad that I read this book. Not just because it was written by Ed Greenwood? Well, considering that it's the first thing I've ever read by him, <laughs> did you feel that the characters were well written did they read as realistic to you they certainly did the humans definitely very <laughs> very easy to relate to just don't know how realistic demons can be it works it definitely works you could still tell i mean they had their own distinct personalities fetishes um abilities again. thanks that was adorable so i blush when i say fetish but everybody was extremely distinct which, that, again, can be very hard to do, especially when you get a cast like like Ed Greenwood had in this book. Because you start to see the chemistry that develops between 
demons and their human pets. But then you also see the demons that are outside of those relationships interacting with the other humans. And it's, it's this, honestly, this whole book was a mess of crossed plot lines. And yet I never really got lost. That's saying a lot. It is. And it, and it wasn't a ridiculously long book. It was fairly short. You read it very quickly. I, I read it in about 24 hours, but I was reading like a demon. No pun ha, intended. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, pun intended. <laughs> All right. So what rating would you give this book then? How many spoons? On a scale of one to five spoons, I give it four. Good rating. I think that some of it is a little bit colored by this not being necessarily my preferred reading material, but it did also have a couple of drawbacks just in writing style that I think might just be personal preference. Um, I do knock off that point because one thing that he does in his writing style is he interrupts himself a lot. He well, so do you. I know I do. He goes to the extreme <laughs> <laughs> to the point where like he'll be going along in a sentence and then you'll see an M dash and he'll go off on this little tangent and within that tangent is another sentence. And then you have the next M dash, what closes it and he goes back to the original sentence and you just kind of go, wait, what? And you cross your eyes and you have to actually go and read just what's in the M dash and then go and read the original sentence just by itself. <laughs> it's almost like you're reading the same paragraph twice, which in itself was kind of a cool experience once you figure out that's how you need to read it. But before that, it's just really confusing. <laughs> <laughs> so a style that would need to be adjusted to. Yeah, but... A bit of an acquired taste. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, doing it in the freezer. That's a taste I'd rather not acquire. Yeah. So anyway, you can go pick up a copy of Helma, Your World is Doomed online in a lot of different places. We'll have links to it in the liner notes. All right. So, AF. Hi. You know how one of our favorite things to do is pimp other people? <laughs> yeah. Let's do that. Okay, here's a promo. Stillwater, West Virginia. A town as hard and unfeeling as the coal that hides deep in the mountains around it. But something else lies buried in the hills of Stillwater. Something much darker. An evil beyond time, waiting to rise and bathe the world in blood and fire. When miners unwittingly dig into its tomb, only Kyle, Stillwater's prodigal son, and paranormal investigator Maya stand between humanity and hell. Time is short, and evil runs deep in still water. Written by Justin R. McCumber and published by Griffinwood Press, Still Water is a dark journey into the heart of evil. Kane Gilmore, best-selling author of Ragnarok and The Crypt of Dracula, says, In Stillwater, Justin R. McCumber brings all the vivid Americana of Stephen King and all the creeping evil menace of Lovecraft to a claustrophobic tale of horror lurking in the deep parts of the world. And Jeremy Bishop, author of Refuge, warns, You'll want to leave the light on long after you've turned the final page of this dark thriller. Stillwater is available in print and ebook from all fine online retailers. The audiobook, narrated by Veronica Jaguer, can be found at audible.com, Amazon, and iTunes. To learn more about the author, please go to www.justinmccumber.com, as well as facebook.com forward slash Justin R. McCumber. Don't get lost in the dark.
We are back, and uh, it's time for a new segment. Dun, 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 dun. So we didn't actually announce that this was happening in our last month's episode, which we're sorry for, but this is a new segment, and this is audience participation. Which, if you've been following us on Facebook and Twitter, you knew was coming. Yeah, and this will happen again, so keep your eyes peeled on our Facebook feed. Just uh, We do have a page. The Melting Podcast, yay. And Twitter, at Melting Podcast. And we'll be doing more of this very soon. But here we go with our first Mystery Meals segment. We spent about two weeks at the beginning of October asking for parts of speech. Adjectives, nouns, Those verbs. Those would be parts of speech. Celebrity names. Those of you who have ever done Mad Libs, you know what's coming. <laughs> yeah, we went there. Yeah, we went there. So we're going to try to start doing mystery meals every now and then, usually involving an iconic scene from classic literature. Yeah, we went there. <laughs> now, here's the thing. I am the one running these. Erin knows what scene it is, but she has not seen any of this since it has been filled in by you, our audience. So here we go. An iconic scene <laughs> from the Lord of the Rings trilogy by J.R.O. Tolkien. Lord, give me strength. We're not going to edit out any of our own laughter either, guys. Oh, gosh. There's going to be a lot of it. <laughs> I can't even stop. She can't read Mad Libs, guys, so this could take a while. Bilbo drooled. I have never known you to give me voracious advice before, he said. As all your unpleasant advice has been good, I wonder if this advice is not bad. Still, I don't suppose I have the stained glass window or pendulum, left to deal with the ring. It has grown, and I have not. But they... Oh, sorry. Click, click. Uh, but unwrap me. Oh. <laughs> what do you mean by they? The moose who are sent with the ring. <laughs> exactly. And who are they to be? That seems to me what this council has to decide, and all that it has to decide. Elves may thrive on bread alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do have elven bread. Uh, <clears throat> and dwarves endure great blood sausage. <laughs> but I am only a gritty hobbit, and I miss my dinosaur at noon. <laughs> Can't you think of some secrets now? Or put it off till after dinner? <laughs> No one answered. <laughs> <laughs> the noon bell devoured. Oh, my. Still no one spoke. Frodo glanced at all the unicorns. <laughs> but they were not turned to him. All the council sat with downcast eyes as if in deep thought. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> A great lobster fell on him. <laughs> As if he was awaiting the pronouncement of some whiskey that he had long foreseen and vainly hoped might, after all, never be spoken. <laughs> ah! An overwhelming longing to inseminate. <laughs> oh my. And remain at peace by Bilbo's side in a Tiffany's store. Ooh, buy me something. Uh, filled all his inner ear canal. <laughs> gonna throw off his balance. Ow. At last, with an effort, he screwed and wondered to hear his own words, as if some other will was using his turgid voice. 
I will gag the ring, he said, <laughs> though I do not know the way. God. Elrond raised his duodenums and looked at him, and Frodo felt his heart pierced by the sudden keenness of the glance. If I understand aright all that I have heard, he said, I think that this task is appointed for you, Frodo, and that if you do not find a way, Jeffrey Jones will. <laughs> This is the burrito of the Shire folk. <laughs> this. <laughs> when they arise from their superfluous fields to shake the towers and councils of the great. Who of all the delicious could have foreseen it? <laughs> or, if they are delicious, why should they expect to know it until the hour has struck? <laughs> but it is a saucy burden. <laughs> so heavy that none could mail it on another. I do not lay it on you. But if you take it horrendously, I will say that your choice is right. <laughs> and though all the mighty elf friends of old, Clara Robertson, and Emily Beeman, and James Silverstein, and P-Tone himself were assembled together, <laughs> your uvula should be among them. <laughs> Love you guys. <laughs> but you don't weep him off alone, surely, master cried Sam, unable to contain himself any longer, <laughs> and fudged up from the corner where he had been explosively sitting on the floor. Guys, Sam has explosively fudged. <laughs> this is what you're making me read right now. No, indeed, said Elrond, turning towards him with one eyebrow raised quizzically. <laughs> That's very accurate. <laughs> Hugo Weaving would approve. <laughs> oh, no, it's my word. You shall at least spoon with him. <laughs> we knew it. We knew it, Simon Frodo had a thing. Spoon. <laughs> it's for you, Delane. <laughs> it is hardly possible to separate you from him, even when he is summoned to a... Hubristic. Hubristic council, and you are not. Oh, my. Sam sat down, blushing and flaming. <laughs> They're going to spoon later. A savory pickle we have landed ourselves in, Mr. Frodo, he said, plodding his head. <laughs> okay, you're reading this next time. But I, I get them. Okay, then by you, I meant Theo, totally. <laughs> Sounds like okay. a plan. So that's how the mystery meals go, guys. You get um, some unedited stuff from us. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so iconic scenes from classic literature. Just these are a little crappily longer. read by me because I'm trying so hard not to laugh and failing. <laughs> we do well. I do already have our scene and uh, excerpt picked out. For, yeah, you told me about this that. Month. Yep. you guys will love this one. So we know what the scene is. So check and uh, keep an eye out on our Facebook and Twitter feeds because we do put up different requests on both feeds and help us make a scene. I think I'm going to like the Mystery Meals segment. You're going to like watching me squirm when I read them. We do have one short announcement before we close this episode out. The gauntlet has been thrown, and we have our first cook-off challenge. Ooh. David Went, who wrote the Three Stoke the Fire stories. Our very own Doc Blue. Our buddy. We love him. Has issued a formal challenge to another future word chef. His story has been accepted and will be produced on a future episode. Uh, J.R.D. Skinner. Oh, Jerd. They are going to be writing head-to-head -head stories 
We have given them a little bit longer word count than Stoke the Fires. You can look for it on our Valentine's Day episode. But here are the terms of the cook-off. No more than 2,500 words. They need to be Valentine's Day themed. And Aaron, what are their characters going to be? See, I have been given the task of choosing the main characters. And instead of giving them something specific, as in you have a white female, this, 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 no. I'm going to have a little bit more fun, and I'm going to allow you guys to have a little bit more fun. You must use, as one of your romantic leads in your story, a cryptozoological creature. I'm talking Nessie, Lizard Man, Skunk Ape, Yeti. Chupacabra. Chupacabra, Jersey Devil. One of them must be one of your two or more romantic leads in your story. Now, Jerd, if you choose a Sasquatch... I might have to choose your story just by default. Now, that's just playing favorites, Aaron. Well, but then there's Doc Blue. My favorite color is in his name. So I'm going to be torn whether it's it, it's Sasquatch versus Blue. I, I just don't know who I'm going to choose. But here's the thing. We're not going to be the only ones judging this contest. Oh, no. No. We'll give you a little more detail on that when the stories actually run in February. But there is going to be some audience participation in the judging. So it's not going to be able to be just Aaron being happy that there's a Sasquatch that's blue. <laughs> blue Sasquatches. <laughs> no, we will be requiring taste tests in our cook-off, and you all will be our testers. My vote's for a jackalope. Yeah, a jackalope. That, that? that jackalope's a good one, too. Okay. Thank you for yelling that out, Theo. I didn't, reala- I didn't realize this was also an improv show. Well, he's uh, he's the dish boy, so he's kind of in the background. He's always there. I'm you just don't notice back. him. <laughs> I see no smiles. well i think it's about time we brought this episode to a close it's been a good long one we got several good segments in there this is what we were aiming for all along having a good variety show and lots to show yep you just never know what you're gonna get except that you know you know you're gonna get your prompts and me so yeah i'm the most important part microphone to me okay they can still hear me shh i'm the favorite shh I'm an attractive brunette. I'm, Doc Blue said so. I'm bespectacled. It's adorable. Yeah, I know. So you know you're going to get your prompts. We've got two open, as always. So if you want to write a Stoke the Fire story, check out our prompts page. Prompt number six is, why is everyone afraid of the mailman? And prompt number seven, write a story featuring a member of the Melting Podcast crew as one of your main characters. Make me a villain. I'd be a better villain. Make me a villain. Do it. You need a challenge. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. So send us stuff. That's my line. Well, then say it. Send us stuff. And we'll use it to feed the masses. Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast. Or you can email us. The Melting Podcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it as long as you don't change it, don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are by the Free Sound Project. And our theme is by Drew Rich Creek. Send us stuff. stuff.